My name is Tony Wynn, and this is the Remotely Software Podcast, where I interview remote software developers to discover how they and their team work effectively from different locations. This week, I talked with Andy Minchin, a remote software developer working out of Leadville, Colorado. We discuss traveling, tooling, onboarding developers, creating structure, building trust, remote first versus remote friendly, and remote etiquette. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So, Andy, you're you're traveling right now, right? I am, yes. Um, can you tell me a little bit about where you're at? Yes. I grew up in uh, Maine, about an hour or so north of Portland. And um, I'm there right now visiting with family. I'm currently uh, staying in a house near Rockland, Maine, working from there for this week. Nice. You were concerned earlier about lobster boats potentially being too (laughs) noisy. Are you hanging off of a cliff on this house overlooking the ocean or what's the the setup of the house? So the house is um, especially the house that my grandmother lived in for many years. It is on a uh, river, an estuary technically where the river meets the meets the ocean. And so there are some some lobster boats out in front of out in front of the house, but it's not not quite a cliff, <laughs> more of a deck. Nice. So normally I ask about people's desk. I'm assuming you are you don't really have any kind of desk at, at your your grandmother's I, house. I don't. <laughs> um, yeah, it's tr- working well on the road is always an interesting thing for that reason for me because I I'm used to having my standing desk and a monitor and and a room that is mine alone and and all that kind of stuff which is great for working but on the road sometimes it's working in a hotel room or working in a bedroom or sometimes on a on a deck overlooking some lobster buoys and lobster boats <laughs> do you spend much time working working on the road i've been lucky my wife and i have a lot of family and friends back east we live in Colorado normally, but we have, for the last couple of years, we've been going out to Maine um, or New England in general for about a week or two per summer, and those have tended to be working vacations. And then throughout the rest of the year, I tend to work probably another week or two remotely. Sometimes if my wife has to travel for work, I'll do that. She travels throughout the Mountain West pretty frequently, so... If she's gone for a few days and we can find a, a dog-friendly place to, to go, then I'll, I'll go and work with her. You went to Hong Kong kind of recently, right? Yes. Did you work while you were over there? I didn't. That was, although it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, so my younger brother lives in Shanghai. So we, my wife and I, I took a new job recently. And in the time in between, I went and visited, visited him and got to see Shanghai and Hong Kong. Nice. Although it's funny you mention that because one of my other colleagues who lives in Boston most of the time just worked from Hong Kong for a couple of weeks. Sweet. Can you tell me a little bit more about your uh, your normal setup? So when you're at home, you've got a standing desk. It's in its own room that is uh, only your office or is it shared space or what's the home situation like? Yeah. So we recently moved into a into a bigger house. I've moved a couple of times in the last couple of years, actually. This is the most dedicated space I've had yet. So now it's currently a guest room slash office that I work from. 
But prior to that, we were living in a very small house, and my bedroom was also my office. So that was literally about three steps from from bed to work. (laughs) But I do also sometimes mix it up. So oftentimes I'll start my morning working from the kitchen and drink some coffee and um, eat breakfast in there and go over emails or look at code reviews or things like that before getting down to to the the business of, of writing software, for which I like having a separate keyboard and monitor and all that stuff. Tell me a little bit about that setup. So I have, it's uh, it's actually kind of a kind of a janky setup. I have a, a monitor, like a twenty seven inch monitor, and then I have that set up on to the right, and I use the laptop as my second monitor on the left, and then I have a an Apple mouse and a separate clicky keyboard, and that setup works pretty well for me. It's definitely standing. I have a, a fancy mat to stand on, which I like a lot, mostly because, well, because I'm rarely wearing shoes or anything while I'm working. Um, <laughs> helps in the back pain and so forth department. Is it a sit-stand uh, situation, or it's always standing? It's always standing. If I decide I need to sit, I which I do sometimes, I'll typically just take the laptop somewhere else and, and sit down. Gotcha. It's just you and your wife at the house and she's got like a a full-time job. So in general, when you're working, it's mostly an empty house. Is that true? Uh, Yes. Although except for the dog, (laughs) the dog is there. Although she is, she mostly leaves me alone unless someone comes and delivers things. Um, In which case she likes to make sure that everyone, myself, anyone who's I'm talking to, et cetera, knows that there's a potential intruder. (laughs) nice this house in colorado that you're talking about is in leadville colorado which is a pretty remote place right it is uh and it actually it feels a little more remote than it actually than it actually is we are with no traffic we're a little less than two hours from denver which is great for access it means we can get down to denver for things we need like the international airport and visiting our friends down there. And sometimes it's nice to go down for other cultural things as well. Leadville is in the high mountains. It's actually the highest city in the country. Although I use the term city a little loosely because the population is about 3000 people. So it's pretty small. Gotcha. Cool. I was looking at your Twitter preparing for this and you have a tweet that says, I love Leadville living, just took 10 minutes to walk to the DMV, register my car, and walk home. And there was a hailstorm on the way back. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's a pretty small town. It is a small town, yeah. And you're, I guess, like, to be that close to wherever the DMV is, you're kind of downtown in, in the bustle of Leadville? Yes. So, um, so Leadville has a, despite being so small, and the number is a little bit could be a little bit misleading because the the rest of the county is about 9,000 people and the city limits of Leadville are very small. So um, a lot of people live just outside the city limits in unincorporated Lake County, which is an interesting sort of pattern that uh, is common in the West. But it has a a nice historic downtown. The, The city was a mining city for a long time. And so it was very prosperous in the sort of mid to late 19th century and actually had almost 10 times as many people living there at that point. Wow. But now it's just a little 
there's still some mining that happens there. It's kind of a bedroom community to the bigger ski resorts and other mountain towns nearby. Gotcha. So y'all were in Denver before this. What drew you up the mountain? <laughs> so we chose to, um, well, it's a couple of things. We had spent a lot of time outdoors. We had been skiing most weekends in the winter and going mountain biking in the summer or trail running. And the, the traffic going away from Colorado's Front Range, which is where most of the people live in cities like Denver and Fort Collins, the traffic getting into the mountains was getting really bad. And we found that we were spending multiple hours per weekend just trying to get out of the city. So that was part of it. And then I was working remotely, and uh, my wife found a great job in Frisco, Colorado, which is about half an hour away. So the rest is kind of history. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started working remotely? What's been your story up, up till now? Right. I am a, am, I'm a career switcher. I started, my early career was doing education stuff in, well, doing technology stuff in schools, in, in elementary and middle schools. And I did that for about seven years. And then I went to Turing School, which is a code school slash boot camp in Denver. So I did that for about seven, that, took, that was about seven months long, and I came out and started my first remote job. Is that something you were looking for at the time, or how did you feel about that? It's definitely not. At the time, I was looking for, well, I was looking for a job in general, and wasn't entirely sure what to expect or what to look for. When I first started thinking about the possibility of remote work, I was excited about the prospect for the reason of being able to work from Maine or live in a small town, but I was a little nervous about it. I was not sure that I would have the discipline to actually work all that time and get things done. I was also concerned looking for looking at my first job as a software developer. I was concerned about getting the proper amount of mentorship and being able to improve quickly. The job that I ended up taking, of course, was fully remote and fully 100% pairing, which was the thing that really sold me on it. And that worked out really well. You get this job and you're learning to do some pair programming or you're doing some pair programming, you're leveling up as a developer. Were there things about that experience that were kind of surprising? Like you had concerns about how you'd be able to stay on task and stuff like that. Were there other things that you didn't necessarily think of going into it that either were uh, surprise benefits or kind of surprise struggles with that remote setup? That's a good question. I would say that I, in the, in the first couple weeks, it took me a little bit of time to get comfortable enough working with people that I didn't think I or didn't feel like I knew very well. It took me a little time to get comfortable saying, uh, you know, like maybe we should take like interrupting the flow of programming to say, let's take a couple minutes because I might need to go use the bathroom or <laughs> that sort of thing. And that was just a matter of needing to feel more comfortable as a colleague, I think. In terms of some of the benefits, I'd say twofold. The first one would be getting to know a lot of amazing people and getting to know them better than I would have expected and 
obviously doing that process quickly. Turns out if you're in a video chat with somebody for eight hours a day, you get to know them pretty well. <laughs> so that was definitely one. Another one that I knew that I expected a little bit, but didn't realize the extent to which I would drink the proverbial Kool-Aid was getting on board with some of the technologies we used, specifically the video chat combined with Vim and Tmux. Mm -hmm. Because that has had a significant and lasting impact on my on my workflow. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, you'd just come out of touring. Did you have any experience with Vim or Tmux or was uh, day one like, I don't know how to use computers anymore? Um, I had been using Vim somewhat casually, maybe not somewhat casually, but definitely ineffectively for about a month beforehand. So that was that definitely helped. And I am glad that I didn't start out just with Vim because I got used to using a regular editor. I was using Atom beforehand, and mm -hmm. I liked using that and learned some of the more advanced features that I would want my editor to do, and then parlayed that into Vim. Tell me a little bit about why you feel like Vim and Tmux is a really good setup for someone that's uh, developing software remotely. Sell me on it. Okay, so uh, it's a combination of two things. One is that Vim and Tmux are awesome, and <laughs> the other is that trying to screen share things is terrible. <laughs> so, um, so I'll start with the I'll start with the the latter first because it's because it's easiest. Trying to share code over a screen share does not work effectively in my experience. And I've used Screen Hero and Hangouts and Skype and all those things, but especially when you're trying to to have when you have a big screen that you're trying to share, sending that video over the over the wire doesn't work very well. And you're talking about like latency or resolution or all the above. Both. What, what feels bad about the video share? Trying to watch video of code, especially on, you know, like a 27 inch monitor is just difficult for me. Also, uh, sometimes latency means that you're seeing things after you're hearing the person tell you about them or things along those lines. And sometimes the resolution makes it hard to read. So it's kind of all those things. But the other part, and Screen Hero has a little bit of a solution for this, but it's still not as good as the as a Vim TMS combo. The other thing is that it's difficult to to be interactive. Right? It's difficult to take over and drive for a few seconds if you want to do that. Mm -hmm. So I've just had a, a bad experience with those. And I think now having used the Vim Tmux where you don't have to deal with those, which we can get to in a second. Now I'm especially now now that I'm I'm sold on on the Vim Tmux combo, I, I am especially sensitive to to those pitfalls. <laughs> um, the better solution has uh, has erased all of your patience with uh, exactly the lesser solution. Exactly. So that's the that's why I don't like those other ones. The reason I do like Vim and Tmux, the first reason is, and I would be sold on this alone, is that it solves all of those problems. Um, <laughs> it's because you're sharing the actual terminal session, the Tmux session, you're not trying to, to stream video this whole time. You're sending the actual characters on the screen, which means, among other things, that you can have whatever font you want. If you decide that coding in Papyrus is the way for you, then you can <laughs> you can do that and uh, and not 
distract your your colleagues. And also because it's so much less data, uh, it's basically instantaneous and either person can drive easily. That's enough in and of itself. Along with that, BIM and TMUX are a more comfortable environment for me now because I'm used to pairing with them. They also let me keep all of the context that I need, all the, all the things I'm working on in one place. I now work at a place where we are, where most people don't use Vim and Tmux. We don't pair as much. So those people, I, I look over at their screen sometimes and they have like four terminal windows open and each of those have multiple tabs and then they have like Sublime open and all these other things. And it, it looks like chaos to me. <laughs> uh, although that's obviously their personal thing. They can do whatever they want. But I really enjoy being able to adjust my Tmux panes and Vim splits such that I can see all the things I want to see at once. And the navigation and speed of editing and all those things have gotten significantly faster and more fluid for me. I don't find myself clicking into another window all the time. Mm-hmm. Tmux for you isn't just like a collaboration kind of thing. You use that if, if it's only you. Yes, definitely. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, what other tools have been helpful for you? So Vim Tmux, you've talked about some kind of video chat. What other tools are helpful? Yeah, um, so I, I don't love the new Google Hangouts, but some kind of video chat I think is a really helpful and useful thing for pairing. It's nice to be able to see the person you're talking to so that you're, you can sort of share a little bit more of a connection. And when you're hair shrugs and so forth you can see what's going on or you can see their expressions but i'm not incredibly picky about which one i think people have complaints about all of them i've had good luck with hangouts or skype or more recently we've been using the one built into slack a little bit oh cool anything else besides uh video chatting tools any other tools that are kind of essential for getting your stuff done project management type stuff or i have not worked with a project management tool that I liked very much in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Trello was probably the last one that I that I enjoyed working with. I am currently using Jira. I've mm. recently used Pivotal and some other ones. And I can't find my way around them very effectively, which leads to uh, not really wanting to use them very much. They seem like they have a lot of great features for people who love process <laughs> and want to like measure a team's progress within an inch of its life. So unfortunately I don't have any good advice on that front. Anything else random apps that you might be running? Um, so sometimes if I'm working alone, sometimes I will use, and I haven't found one yet that I like, but I'll use one of a, some number of Pomodoro apps. Mm. Working alone, I definitely find it more difficult to sometimes get into the flow of getting things done. So something like that is helpful because it forces me to get up and go for a walk or walk, you know, walk the dog or make more coffee or something along those lines. Is that a common way that you work or is that like a reaction when you feel like you're not being productive? It's like, okay, time to bust out the Pomodoro. I would say... That kind of both intellectually, I think it's a way to try to prevent getting stuck on things. 
because I like having a little more structure in my day. That's kind of one thing that I have liked about pair programming as well is that it enforces some structure. You know, it's things like, okay, if we're going to meet at whatever time, I try to be pretty good about meeting at that time. Yeah, it's definitely been helpful for me on that side, but also when the expectation is that work gets done pair programming, there's no question like at the end of the day, should I still be working or not? Did mm-hmm. I accomplish enough for today? When you're spending all of how you get work done pair programming, you're just done, right? Your pair has gone. It is time to be done and we'll start work again tomorrow or whatever. That has been super helpful for me with the balance on both sides, right? It protects the time that you're in work and it protects the time that you're out of work. It's been helpful for me. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. Since I've been pairing less, I've been working more. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Or at least spending more time working. I'm definitely more concerned about making sure that I'm at the computer, that my I've become a little bit of a slave to the little like green circle next to my name uh, <laughs> and and that sort of thing. And you're right that you never, it's difficult to feel like you're done. Although for me, one thing that has helped with that is leaving my computer in my office and <laughs> leaving the office at the end of, you know, whenever I decide I'm done for the day, I try to make those boundaries a little firmer. Mm-hmm. So you've switched, uh, you've switched companies in the past couple of months. So I think it's not uncommon for someone to kind of be figuring out like expectations around, am I, am I producing enough value? What's the expectation for when I'm done and what I should have accomplished? And especially as you're trying to boot up on a new project, potentially feeling like not as productive as, as other people on the team. Are there signals from, uh, new coworkers that, either help or or hurt your ability to be able to disconnect are other people always green 24 7 and it's like what the heck man yeah yeah that's a good question uh so so i'm on a i've moved to a pretty small team and people do tend to be pretty green 24 (laughs) 7 there are yeah people people uh in my in my current gig are definitely on a lot and and available a lot which is sometimes nice if I, if I have a question, but that part's definitely a little bit interesting because I tend to be much more binary. I'd much rather be there 100% or off doing my own thing. Mm-hmm. And as far as the booting up on a new project, I think that anytime you're starting something new is a, a time that like all that imposter syndrome stuff comes back in a big way. And so it's been, that part has been a little bit interesting. And especially if you are learning new conventions and things like that within the, within the code, within process, within all those things. And so I think that I personally have been angling a lot more for more pairing as I've been trying to get used to this new company and culture and process and all those things. Mm-hmm. Are there other things besides pairing that you can imagine an organization that's remote, that's wanting to onboard new people should be doing? What are the do's and don'ts kind of in your mind and through your, your couple experiences here with getting someone booted up to a remote team? I think that you can do a lot with pairing because high level overviews, which seem like they may be a good idea. And, you know, if, if I'm onboarding somebody new, I'm 
always tempted to be like, oh yeah, so this is the this is the app, and it talks to all these other things, and this is what goes on with all those things. Um, <laughs> I find that those are very difficult to follow if you haven't been in the app, and they're mm-hmm. incredibly easy to give if you have been in the app. Mm-hmm. In my experience, working, you know, picking a small chunk of something that someone can work on and working on that with them is one of the best ways because then the new person has ownership over the code they've written. If it's well-defined, then they can understand the whole problem. And as they start to learn some of the context for the bigger project in general, that's been the thing that has worked best for me personally. Mm -hmm. Any other anti-patterns? Like, obviously, it it sounds like the generic overview over everything that's uh, supposed to give you 100% context uh, is maybe not a waste of time necessarily, but definitely not the silver bullet that maybe the organization thinks it is. Are there other stuff that maybe organizations put too much trust in, in your experience, or patterns that just don't work? I think it's just a difficult problem, right? Like, it takes a lot of time and work to get the same level of context as somebody who's been working on a project from the get in it. I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure. Because, like, even the, even the big general overview, I think it's hard to get much out of it, but I don't think that that necessarily means it's a bad idea. Right. Um, especially if you can spend a little bit of time trying to draw things. I have a, one other thing I didn't mention is that I have a whiteboard in my office and that has been invaluable for trying to, to break things down. Has your whiteboarding mostly been a result of you looking through code and then drawing stuff out? Or have you use that kind of within collaborative conversation with with other team members it has depended mostly i think it's mostly mostly a personal thing a lot of times for me it's been sort of architecturally trying to figure out what parts of a of a system need to talk to other parts and how they're talking and if something's breaking down sometimes for me i'm like a definitely a visual spatial kind of thinker sometimes drawing those things out makes it a little easier to see and describe also um, it can help me articulate myself more clearly because talking about some of these very abstract things you know a video chat helps with the social emotional aspect of mm-hmm. conversation and conveying meaning but it does not necessarily help with conveying like a service-oriented architecture <laughs> uh, <laughs> So it's helpful to to have something you can you can look at for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Was there any of that kind of documentation diagram kind of specific documentation within the organization that was made available to you, or was just the act of being able to produce that yourself just valuable in and of itself for your own understanding, such that that document wouldn't have necessarily sped you up? Our architecture is actually, if someone asked me to draw like an architectural diagram, I'd say, oh, we have like three services and they talk to each other a few times. <laughs> um, the architecture itself, you could argue it's not terribly complex. A lot of the communication within those various parts gets very complex. Right. I think that something, if there, so there, there wasn't any, any document like that. I think if there had been, it would have been nice. But for me, drawing it out has helped kind of in the same way that I have a a personal 
<laughs> pattern that I follow sometimes. It's really probably an anti-pattern. I'll look at some code and say, oh, geez, I don't really understand why this is written this way. And mm -hmm. then I'll check out a new branch or something and go through as an exercise trying to refactor it into something that makes more sense to me. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, if I do that, by the end of that exercise, I have something that looks different, maybe, or maybe I've gotten back to what it looked like originally, but at least I can understand the intent a little better. Mm -hmm. And so that tends to be a, a throwaway exercise. So it's not producing new code or different code, but it works well for me as a way to understand what the heck is going on sometimes. Yeah, that's a really interesting pattern. Obviously, the person that understands the code the most is probably the person that wrote it. And that's the normal way that you understand the system, right? You've participated right. in it and you've built it. It's interesting to reproduce, like act that out almost in order to to get that same benefit. That's really cool. It works sometimes, although it can be it can be frustrating to say, oh, I'm going to go in and fix this thing. And then you work on it for a little <laughs> while and you say, oh, yeah, no, this turns out this was a hard problem. <laughs> So you were coming from an organization that had a heavy pair programming kind of culture, which meant there was a very particular time, maybe that you're meeting up with your pair and you're pairing till a very particular time. And it uh, provides a fair amount of structure, uh, which is another way of saying, like, doesn't provide as much flexibility. And right. the new organization, it's, it seems like. There's a lot of flexibility and not so much structure. I feel like I've talked to different people that thrive in those different environments. How have you felt about the process of kind of creating your own structure to work within? Has that been interesting? Has that been overwhelming? What's kind of your feeling? Is this is it freeing to not have as much structure or like imposed organizational structure? Right. So there's very little of that uh, in my in my current job. We have one scheduled meeting per week currently um wow. yeah so we we meet up for it's and it's scheduled for an hour on fridays and we meet up and oftentimes we're out in half an hour so there's very little structure um mm -hmm. that said we have a, we have a pretty robust communication over slack so i've definitely had to impose my own structure through things like pomodoros and i think i sort of fell back on a lot of the structure that I was used to when I was pairing a lot, uh, which is to say starting at a certain time and trying to be finished at a certain time and stuff like that. I definitely expected to enjoy being, being able to be a little more flexible. Mm -hmm. So I've said like, I like to ski a lot. And I think some of this is a, is a time of year thing as well. So this coming winter, I will probably be able to ski in the mornings before work. So mm -hmm. you can get a lot done before 10 a.m. if you're starting at 10 a.m. rather than 7 or 8 mm -hmm. or even 9. So I look forward to that. During the summer, I prefer to go mountain biking or trail running or something after work. So that's an easier thing to work into, you know, an 8 to 5 or 9 to 5 type schedule. So, yeah, I don't think I've uh, I've taken too much advantage of some of that time flexibility, although... <laughs> And it sounds like I'm hopeful that I will in the future. It sounds like you're comfortable with the idea of like, let's shift my entire schedule so I can do something before or after. 
is the idea of like lunchtime, three hour break ski session or, or something like that. Is that like some kind of boundary that it's like, ah, that could, that could probably end up hurting me trying to do stuff like that. I think that right now I tend to, I think it's easier for me to, to do those things before or after work, mostly because a lot of the things that I like to do can sometimes take longer than that. Like a lot of days I'll go out and maybe finish work at 4.30 and then go out and go skiing or mountain biking or something and come home at 8 or 8.30. Those those start to get into things that for me are a little too long to, to do in the middle of the day. I have done that a few times, um, like leave in the early afternoon and then come back and do a couple hours of work before I go to bed. But my, I also think it's important to have time carved out for family. I like to be able to have dinner with my wife. For me, having the a little bit more structure in the form of a of a hard stop at some point, good for my sanity and family life. Do you feel like your wife has noticed much of a difference with the kind of change in culture? Is that more of a conversation now than it used to be, or less? Or I think it's about the same. She's noticed that I have less to say about the lives of my colleagues as I'm, uh, or, or other like social things within my work. She's noticed that I have less of that to talk about. That probably being as a result of not pair programming for eight hours straight with, with different <laughs> employees and instead spending 30 minutes with them once a week. Right, exactly. Can you talk a little bit about being able to build relationships and trust with coworkers remotely, especially with, within the context of organizational culture that, in one case, you're valuing collaboration through pair programming, and in another case, maybe you're valuing uh, efficiency and flexibility. Do you have thoughts on uh, on building trust kind of within the greater organizational dynamics? So I've thought about this. I'm not sure that I have come up with anything very useful yet. Uh, so, so by that, I mean, when you're pair programming, you get a lot of that for free, the trust of your colleagues and that, and that sort of thing. When you are not pair programming, it's a much more difficult thing to do. And, and honestly, I'm not sure I've gotten much farther than that. I, I, I haven't <laughs> figured out in a really efficient way to get there other than pair programming. You've got a really great blog post called How to Remote, I think it is. Mm -hmm. And in it, you talk about a few do's and don'ts that I feel like is the remote etiquette guidebook inside of here. And I feel like some of those kind of things do lead to trust or lack of trust, potentially. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of things as a remote worker that you feel like are, how's the way, socially acceptable? <laughs> I think the biggest thing is to remember the 10,000 foot view is to remember that we are all humans and try to be empathetic in your interactions with your fellow humans with whom you happen to work. <laughs> I think pretty much all the do's and don'ts that we try to follow in that, in terms of working remotely, are in service of, of that, that mm -hmm. idea of empathy and, and being human. That's one of the reasons that video, I think, works so well, right? It's helpful to be able to see somebody if you're trying to, to communicate effectively with them. It's helpful to make sure that you are providing a space in the conversation 
for people who might not feel comfortable interrupting you. <laughs> I think as long as as long as you're trying to be empathetic about your in, in your communications with everyone, then you're sort of on the right track. Yeah, it's really interesting talking about video. It obviously being like a higher bandwidth form of communication than than Slack, right? It's right. harder to passionately defend your Git conventions or whatever if you notice the other person is actually crying while you're talking, right? <laughs> like yeah. there's having that higher bandwidth communication can be so helpful to actually know what empathy means in this situation. Because it's it's really difficult. Like just given a tool that is about transferring characters onto a screen to be able to infer a human's mental state or even meaning in general, like uh, being able to be articulate in the those kinds of communication mechanisms is definitely something that that's important and something that you should strive towards, but it has its limits. Yeah, definitely. I wonder if hypothetically, if, uh, if the YouTube comments would be quite as entertaining, if people <laughs> had to see each other while they were, while they were having the, those those discussions i've heard of people someone will have an avatar and uh they'll look really serious in that avatar and uh then it change up and another one they're they're smiling and people will notice like hey i actually feel different interacting with you now (laughs) that you're this meaningless picture that comes by your name when i'm chatting with you is there so you don't really realize like how how affecting the way you're communicating is and your thoughts about another person when the media, the format that you're going through has such low resolution. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also potentially argue that even video over pure audio can make a difference for sort of two reasons. One, if I'm pausing a lot and you can see that I'm sort of looking up uh, because I'm thinking about what I'm trying to say, that's different than if you can see me, like, like baking checking my... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> baking a cake or, yeah, like, doing my laundry or, like, you know, <laughs> sending uh, sending texts to people or, or anything like that. Those things can make, a, can make a big difference. Like, I find that when I am video chatting while programming... A lot of times it'll be, um, so what I typically do is have, have my bigger monitor, have the Tmux session with the code and tests and all that in it, and then I'll have the video going on the laptop, which I, I learned early on because it's really weird if your camera is in one place and the video is in the other place because then you're never looking at the people. <laughs> right. But also, while we are actually working, a lot of times I'll have some browser window up with documentation or like whatever else. I'm not actually necessarily looking at the person, but since software is much more about problem solving than actually typing lines of code, a lot of times right. you're you're trying to talk about things and build a, a shared understanding of how you're going to solve the problem. So that's where those browser windows tend to go away because it's actually a conversation with somebody saying, so how should we do this? Uh, Something that you mentioned there, I think also lends itself to video is the idea that conversations, especially remote conversations, especially audio only conversations can leave people out of the conversation without realizing it. Like there are different personality types that are going to like jump in and want to tell you all about all their things. Um, And then there are other ones that are like, I'm going to sit back and I'd like to 
contribute, but I need some space. I need potentially someone to prompt to show that they actually care that uh, Mm -hmm. I work here and am interested in that. And so doing something that's audio only, it's easy to imagine only the people that you can hear are actually there. So having some kind of video chat where you can actually see, oh, like it looks like person X is uh, completely zoned out right now. And uh, maybe maybe we should check in with that. I think that that's a a really good tip. And it's a really good tip for people that can tend to dominate. Like ask yourself the Mm -hmm. question, is there enough air left in this video chat for anyone else to to be able to communicate? Yeah. And I think I think that's a that's a really good point, especially with when it's more than just one on one. Most most people have more than more than half an hour of meetings per week, but uh, and in those meetings, when they're remote meetings, yeah, it definitely helps. I think it also helps to have people at least have their video on, um, yeah. so you so you can see that they're that they're there. Because um, mm-hmm. I've definitely been in meetings or pairings, like you know, tri or quad pairs with where one person is video and audio muted, and you're like. That person even there? Do they like? <laughs> are they like down getting a cup of coffee like cross town? <laughs> so yeah, I think that can that can definitely make sense. It's also um, one reason I miss being able to type in the old Google Hangouts. If especially if someone's in the middle of of talking about something, you can add a plus one or something right. as a way to agree or disagree or raise another point or get a word in edgewise without necessarily breaking the flow. Can you give a little bit of advice for someone that's wanting to start working remotely? Like you came from a situation where you had you had never written software in an office um, and your first job was coming in doing remote. Do you have any advice for someone that's thinking about that particular setup? Like what kind of questions should they be asking of the organization that they're interviewing with? What kinds of practices should they make sure that they're they're doing in order to keep them on the rails kind of as they're as they're getting started? Yeah, the first thing is definitely, do you have a like how much pair programming are you going to do? Because mm-hmm. if you can do a fair bit of pair programming, then that immediately solves a bunch of a bunch of the issues I personally was worried about. Right? Mm-hmm. You know that you will like in some ways you get a lot of the onboarding, familiarizing yourself with the project stuff for free, or maybe not for free, but it comes a lot more easily. Mm-hmm. You can feel more included and part of the team immediately, whereas going and working for a remote company without any of that can definitely, if you're prone to things like imposter syndrome and stuff like that, that can be pretty difficult without any, if you're not doing any pair programming. For me, it's really helpful to have a base that is just for work. It's really nice to be able to close the door when you're done and say, okay, I'm not doing work right now. I don't need to worry about that. It can also be really nice to say, hey, I am in here working and that means i can't be interrupted right getting yourself set up for that can be another big issue that was one of the things that i set some expectations around so it was pretty easy for my wife because she's gone a lot but i know i've had a a number of times where my in-laws would sometimes come out and wanted to come in and chat during the day (laughs) and i'm like so I understand that I'm here, 
and you're <laughs> at my door, but I am actually in the middle of a meeting. <laughs> like, or yeah, like my boss is calling in two and a half minutes, and I need to be there for the, for that. <laughs> so, so I think setting yourself up for success uh, working remotely can definitely include making sure that you can find yourself in a distraction-free area. Mm-hmm. For me this morning, it was making sure that the Wi-Fi was going to work and that the diesel engines of the lobster boats weren't going to uh, distract <laughs> too much. Nice. Anything else? So one thing that uh, I'm almost certainly doing a terrible job of this morning, having a decent headset microphone combination works pretty can be pretty helpful i had a headset for a long time that was fine for me but uh using google hangouts but surprisingly not skype i would turn into a robot after 10 or 15 minutes which meant i had to reload the hangout window and it was interestingly only with that headset so uh, i never quite figured that one out having it having a decent headset uh, makes a difference for me. I also like being able to easily mute it by putting the uh, microphone boom up. So related to that question, as an organization that's maybe thinking about going remote or is already going remote, but maybe questioning their their kind of patterns and in ways of working, obviously you've found a lot of value pair programming, especially in booting someone up. Is that something, I think a, a lot of organizations like see the value of of that, do you feel like there is declining value as someone is more experienced uh, with an application to pair programming? And along with that, what other things potentially besides pair programming are are helpful for an organization uh, to keep in mind as they're wanting their people to be effective working remote? So I think you get a lot of benefit from from pair programming beyond booting people up on a new project. Some of the advantages especially with a remote remote organization are that you are building this sense of community and camaraderie so i think that can be really helpful and that's definitely harder to do otherwise so so that's definitely one you also get to share context more effectively than putting the lgtm on a bunch of pull requests all the time Mm -hmm. it definitely helps to share that deeper context yeah, which is kind of effectively reducing organizational risk too, right? Because hypothetically, if people are pairing all the time, like at least two people have the context for everything within your system. Exactly. And depending on how you how you use your source control, if, for example, you have a robust use of Git and you're using something like Hitch so that you can pair multiple people on the same on the same commit, then that makes it really easy for me to see a specific line of code and say, oh, this is an interesting commit. Tony and Andy worked on this. Andy's gone, so <laughs> let me ask Tony about it. Other things besides pair programming that would be helpful for an organization? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that um, my current company does that I, that I actually like a lot is we meet up about quarterly. We will meet up for a, a work week where we'll all go somewhere and work together for the week, which is great because A, we get all the big meetings out of the way, which is part of what allows us to to have so so few meetings during the week or during most weeks. But we get to get all those meetings out of the way. We get to spend a little social time together and get some, some FaceTime in. And so that 
I think can be a very helpful thing as well. So yeah, meeting up with your colleagues in person. Do those tend to be vision casting kind of over the next quarter? Are they like, hey, these are the things that we're going to be doing. So let's go ahead and hash out the complicated bits to that, talk through, make sure everyone's on the same page and then go? Or is it more freeform than that? I would say it is kind of a combination. It's not quite as much. Well, so let me preface this by saying that I've only been to one so far. A lot of the high level, difficult problem solving stuff had already been sorted out. Um, so it was more trying to figure out tactically how we were going to approach certain things over the next quarter, basically. It's sort of a quarterly planning meeting. Does that answer the question? Yeah, totally. But then one thing that we used to do that I miss, used to do happy hours, which sound very silly, and uh, your family and friends will make fun of you. Um, <laughs> but uh, having a happy hour at the at the end of a week where... People are cracking a beer and uh, enjoying talking about things outside of work can be a, a a really good way to humanize your colleagues. Catch up on somebody's moving, somebody's having a kid, somebody's off doing outdoor things. That can be a really nice way to connect with people. Anything else come to mind from an organization's perspective? One other thing that can be tricky especially for an organization that is moving toward a more remote, especially if they're moving slowly into being partially remote, it can be really easy to alienate remote people. If you are trying to merge a remote and an on-site culture, that part can be an issue. So specifically there, if you're like, oh yeah, you know, like Susan's going to be working remotely. So we're going to have her call into the meeting. That sort of thing can work in kind of a one-off way. But if, if that is your organization's approach to dealing with remote things, which is sort of like a tack-on remote to your on-site culture, then you're going to have some trouble. And this gets into uh, something else that you've written it a little bit about, the idea that there are companies that can be organized in at least what they would consider to be remote-friendly. Like, we're not going to ostracize you intentionally. <laughs> Right. Um, <laughs> you're not going to you're not, you're not going to get fired for working from home <laughs> versus an organization that is considered remote first. And that means maybe a, a specific set of priorities. Can you explain and talk a little bit about the differences between those kinds of organizational commitments? Yeah, absolutely. And I actually almost certainly hijacked this this idea from somewhere, but I, I can't recall off the top of my head where I originally heard it. The but. first place I saw it was uh, Zach from who used to be at GitHub. He had a series of posts mm -hmm. about how GitHub works remotely. And he mm -hmm. was the first one, uh, Holman, I think his, mm -hmm. his last name yep. is, that uh, introduced me to the concept of remote first versus remote friendly. That may well be it. I think I've read those as well. And it definitely resonated with me. It sounds like with you as well, which is awesome. I think that was a good description you sort of gave where... With remote first, you are entirely focused around your remote employees. That's the way you work. And someone work, working with someone who is also remote versus working with someone who's in an office shouldn't be any different for you. Mm -hmm. Talk about the ways that it wouldn't be different. If you are pairing, then you're pairing using the tools that we're talking about, right? The, the remote-friendly tools, which means 
that it shouldn't really matter if you're sitting at the desk next to me or across the room or in a different office or in a different time zone. Right. So that's one big thing. I think that that part is actually less of an issue than meetings where <laughs> I think meetings are a really easy way to ostracize your remote employees. If meetings are a conference room and you've got a bunch of people around a table and then a camera, then the people calling in via camera are not going to be a first-class part of that discussion. Calling out to them and saying, oh yeah, anyone anyone out there have anything to add? Is um, <laughs> like about as dismissive as you can be, I think. <laughs> so I think that is definitely one big issue. And if you're, you know, it's even more difficult to include remote people if it's like not a conference room with four or five people around a table, but if it's a significantly bigger meeting, if it's like you have 10 to 50 people there and then another 10 to 50 people online, it's going to be difficult to have the remote colleagues be involved. Yeah. And being someone that's been in that situation, it's really difficult to read the room to know, yeah. like, is it okay for me to say something right now? And after I've said something, have people actually heard me <laughs> thinking about talking into the abyss um, yeah. at that point? Because you lose so much context of what's actually going on in the room when you're on a camera looking in across a lot of people. Yeah, looking at the back of a bunch of people's heads. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I absolutely understand that situation. And it's a difficult one. I'm not sure that I have a really good answer for it. But I'm just now thinking about there are like some kind of memes about conference calls where people are calling in and saying, oh, yeah, hey, uh, this is Andy. I wanted to like blah, blah, blah. And almost all of those kind of memes tend to talk about how horrible those conference calls can be. Mm -hmm. And I would agree that conference calls are kind of horrible, but I don't identify with bad conference calls as a remote employee because I think that if the culture is thoughtfully built around having really good conversation, mm -hmm. then you're not going to have those difficult conference call issues. Just introducing video to those conference calls can make a difference if people are actually engaged in video right if everyone's yeah. on video mute it's maybe better that you didn't have video as an option um, <laughs> because you're just communicating that there's some amount that everyone ought to be checked out to this meeting right like right. there's ability an ability to fully engage and no one is there is yeah. is doing that that's a bad signal within a conversation that i'm assuming somebody wanted to be collaborative right right Otherwise, it's an email or I don't exactly understand uh, what the purpose is if it's not hope to be collaborative. But if you set up one of those things with a thousand people on it, like how collaborative do you really want it to be? Yeah, absolutely. And I, that's exactly what I was just thinking is that if I am on something with a thousand people, I'm absolutely going video mute and I'm probably <laughs> listening vi video and audio mute. I probably at that point am folding laundry or something <laughs> while I'm while I'm listening to it. I don't know if that's an appropriate disclosure, but <laughs> that's, but that's definitely my approach in something like that. Because if if I were there in person, I would just be sitting there, right? It's not something that's actually collaborative. Can you talk a little bit about what you think the future of remote work might be? What you think remote? might look like 10 years from now? What things are going to change either culturally or technology-wise 
that is going to make things different? Do you see it growing, crashing and burning, or uh, completely different in style? That's a good question. Well, you could say that maybe people won't be using old-fashioned tools like Vim and Git, or sorry, like Vim and Tmux, <laughs> but uh, I think people said that in the mid-2000s and probably in the 90s, and so, uh, so I don't know about that. Plus, they work really well. I think you're going to see a lot more people working remotely, and there's obviously a bias here because we all think that everyone is just like us. But I love working remotely. It allows me to work in this small town that I love, the middle of the mountains. I actually found out earlier today that my neighbor across the street is a front-end developer for a company out of Chicago. Wow. So that was really interesting because I didn't know that anyone else wrote software (laughs) in in Leadville. (laughs) The Leadville tech scene happens to uh, live across the street from each other. Yeah, exactly. I think we're, we'll have to start a meetup here. But uh, And I think you see that more and more. A lot of people in Colorado work remotely. There are also a lot of on-site jobs in the Denver-Boulder area. And I think that as there is more and more of this kind of work, people are going to, to do it remotely for a lot of reasons. One other great one is obviously it's nice to be able to get a tech salary and live in a place that wouldn't otherwise support that. Mm-hmm. So I think that you'll see more of that. I would hope that infrastructure for working remotely, like having decent internet, will also expand, although who knows? That's a difficult thing to think to predict. But, uh, you know, having a wireless hotspot and being able to work from anywhere is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. It's also nice to be able to travel a fair bit, even if you're based in... Yeah, wherever you live, it's nice to be able to take a month off or not take a month off, work from somewhere else for a month. I think that combined with Airbnb and stuff like that can be really interesting. I think if I were not as settled, if I had started working remotely in my like early 20s and didn't have any family commitments, I'd probably be tempted to do that. Yeah, it's interesting. The traveling thing, the digital nomad lifestyle, right. I feel like sells a lot of people kind of on the idea of working remote. But it's also interesting that a number of people and myself included are more of like a digital homesteader, right? Like we're the people that are able to stay back on the farm um, mm-hmm. and not have to move out to Silicon Valley or or wherever in order to do what we do and be able to continue to participate in communities that otherwise we'd have to make really big trade-offs in order to do. I think that that's really interesting and really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely put myself in that category as well. It it definitely makes a difference. It's also, it's kind of funny, um, by moving from Denver, where there are lots of software jobs, to Leadville, where there is one other person that I know of (laughs) writing, writing software, I have definitely signed myself up for remote jobs for the foreseeable future, remote jobs or a career change. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it's nice that there are a decent number of remote jobs. Like you're saying, really allows you to, to be part of a community that you wouldn't otherwise be able to be a part of. In our situation, and my wife and I, we're both able to have professional, challenging, fulfilling careers and live in this place that otherwise we would have to make some choices about that. 
Thank you so much, Andy. A lot of really good stuff and advice and enjoy learning about how people are doing remote in very different contexts as far as being able to, to live in the highest elevation town in the country and be able to jump over and hang out in Maine for a while. That's been great. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for your blog posts. I definitely encourage folks to check those out. Those have been super helpful in uh, formulating some of my ideas and thinking about ways to work. So appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank you. And a nice chat.